impressionable visual imagination, images speak to me and offer themselves for interpretation in my interior landscape. Certain images. I can summon up these images very easily. A road outside Zagreb in Croatia, where two magnificent German shepherd dogs lie stiffly dead on the embankment, chained together at the neck. Were they thrown by centrifugal force when a truck went round a bend? Did they have a chance? Did their fate hang on each other? Did anyone care? Why were they left there, abandoned? Another road, near Belgrade. Turkish guest workers are driving night and day from Germany in luxurious Mercedes-Benz cars. They rarely stop for rest or nourishment. There are many accidents and many incongruities. A third road in Bosnia. A black horse with wild and flashing eyes. Riderless bucking and rearing despite its hobbled hooves, distressed and dangerous, unable to break free. Such things I've seen on roads. Roads lead somewhere. The road to Damascus, the road to glory, the road to peace, the Dayton Peace Accord. Enough of earth and land for the moment, those fundamental pools of territorial claim. I prefer to think of water, a river that sparkles with laughter, still water with a pearly, silvery sheen like a mirror, a sea that has become a lake of calm, or is the sky This is a dreamlike image. I am on a boat. I have boarded a large white liner in Rijeka and travel through the night into day along the Adriatic coast. I have deck passage and lie there watching the course we thread through islands under starlight. Watching too the white chalky mountain ridge that defines the shore. The moon drifts through the sky like a medusa with its pale jelly flesh, a beacon. At dawn, a veil of fog and pale sun as we slide into harbour at Split, at ancient Spalato. Diocletian's palace enduring behind a fringe of palms. This is ancient Illyria, Dalmatia. This is where water, salt, 
mist, tears and blood coalesce for me in a phantom image. This journey that I made was a dream come true, the dream of a lifetime. This is a dream too. I have come into my lodgings at evening's end. My landlady turns to me. She had been kind, but now I see her face is twisted in a rage. She shouts at me, Jena, Jena. It's the word for woman. I don't understand. She's in mud up to her waist and can't get out. This is a nightmare, and I have it here in Sydney in February 1996, when they are digging up mass graves in the icy mud of Bosnia. This is an excursion into a landscape and waterscape of images, into situations where images connect us with situations beyond our imagining. Dreams. 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 In my dreams, I wanted to be part of a bridge between people. Transcending the limitations of place. Dear Arsenia, the reason why I was trying to contact you at first in New York is that I wish to broadcast a selection of your work and disperse with some comments and some thoughts from you. Using sound in the ether, broadcast sound as a kind of air bridge. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you when I visited Yugoslavia in 1986, but I didn't know you then. I have of a magazine from Yugoslavia called Most, The Bridge. And I'm wondering, now that I do know about you and of your work, if we might form something like a bridge, a sound bridge, you and I. Let's try. This is a romantic image Consider what can happen to bridges. A bridge across water in Mostar. Most equals pont equals bridge. Mostar. Here was a bridge of which was written, It was an attempt to grasp eternity. The bridge is all of us forever. For four centuries, people needed that bridge and admired its beauty. I would say those people who destroyed it whoever they might be. They do not belong to this civilization. Civilization built on the idea of time. Civilization built on the idea of a future. I try to imagine the sound of that old bridge falling down. A bridge like that just doesn't disappear. into fragments. Can you find something there to cling to, to serve as a raft in the water? 
First, I think we have to imagine a huge monumental canvas. It's almost as if we're able to step inside of it. And this is exactly what the painter has done with his composition. He sort of rearranged the raft as if to invite the spectator to step on board to identify with the figures who are desperately seeking rescue in a uh, very tense moment. How do you fathom images? And he has organized a composition, a number of bodies struggling, trying to achieve the attention of a ship on the distant horizon, a ship that's so minute, so small, that's almost totally lost in this vast canvas. But they struggle on with hope. And of course, although that hope is mingled with resignation, with despair among some of the other passengers, but by and large, there is an unfolding, a desperate attempt for these people to gain the attention of that passing ship. I have taken passage and lie there watching the course we thread through islands under starlight. And they build a pyramid where we see the person who caps the composition, the apex of the pyramid, waving rags in order, once again, to signal this passing ship. And it's almost as if these bodies seem to uncoil out of the lethargy that has attacked them during their number of days at sea, adrift. They're in a state of despair, starvation, rage, delirium. But suddenly, the possibility of rescue at this moment leads them to organize themselves in one last desperate attempt to reach this ship in the distance. The moon drifts through the sky like a medusa with its pale jelly flesh, a beacon. The sky is cloudy, the sea is in motion, but there are glimmers of sunrise on the horizon, the sense that possibly rescue is imminent and there'll be salvation for this crew. How do you fathom images? I collect them. I have a box of clippings I began to keep fastidiously when the Bosnian War began until I lost heart. A beautiful red box with flowers full of terrible things. Do you remember Romeo and Juliet, the lovers of Sarajevo, together in death on the Miljatska Bridge? And Irma, the brave little injured girl finally flown out for medical help. And the breadline massacre of innocence near the eternal flame. The drawings were usually just, I, I'd get a brief formula down, you know, just a few lines, and then I'd work from memory late at night because you can't sleep after seeing that kind of destruction. Can images like these stay in the mind? Can they make you feel? Do they fade like old newsprint? Are there too many of them? Do they make you feel numb? Can you distinguish between them? Between one disaster and another? Say between Bosnia and Chechnya, or Bosnia and Rwanda? Well, life to those who own it and to their families never becomes devalued. I find the extent to which people go to to save themselves and save their children and have compassion is unbelievable. Bosnia, Chechnya, Rwanda. What do they have in common besides bones and spilt blood? Some 
random madness. What happened aboard that boat could fill volumes because it's like a microcosm of every inhumanity committed in the history of the world. Almost everything imaginable, everything possible, happened now within the space of time during which these people were abandoned on the raft. Some transmutative change that no one's been able to comprehend or contain. The implosion of empire, the creation of new ones. We use the term, the description, Russia, but Russia as a state never existed. The borders of Russia was always borders of big Russian empire. And at present there exists Russian federation in which Russians are only part of this federation which is populated by over 100 different nations and nationalities. And this notion of multiculturalism, multi-racism, multi-religion, it's, it's the essence of this imperium. The destruction of old certainties, old loyalties. On the territory of the former Soviet Union, we have a process of constant struggle between the forces of integration and the other forces of disintegration who want to separate themselves from the former uh, Soviet Union structure. The destruction of old certainties, old loyalties, the rise of new ones modeled on old myths coming down through the centuries like Chinese whispers. The post-colonial adventure. Many of those countries, for example, people of Tatarstan, Tatars of the Central Russia, they want to build their state, but they are surrounded, they have no access to the sea. They are landlocked territories, so they can't exist practically independently because they have no contacts, no, no access to the sea, no access to the outside world. Even in Rwanda, where the governments left countries once subject to colonial exploitation or power politics, now left to their own, and these various groups factionalize, divide up along nationalist, religious lines, begin to quarrel among themselves, not seeking to find some kind of common ground, some kind of reasonable solution for the whole of the community, but rather dividing up desperately among themselves and not looking outward, not looking externally to see the conditions under which those communities evolved. Down with the king, long live the people, down with the people, long live the king, our king, our people. Former Yugoslavia was also a sort of small imperium built up through the way of conquest, of domination of the smaller nations inside one imperium. The process in Soviet Union accelerated the dissolution of former Yugoslavia. And this type of this imperial structure today belongs to the past and practically they have no chance to be reconstructed and to exist in the 21st century. 
And we watch the changes from somewhere safe, flickering in and out of vision. One very sad thing is that in the West, our media is very racist in the sense that the way the media reports it is almost statistical. A thousand black lives is only worth one white life. And so, you know, six UN soldiers get killed in Bosnia and it's on the news for three weeks. They're French, but you get 7,000 killed in Rwanda and you've got one and a half nights or something, you know. Television can give a picture, but to give a real description of the background, to go deeply into the roots of the event, the cause of the event, that can make only literature. And that's why I'm trying to travel, to understand what's going on and what caused these conflicts, the struggle, what is the reason, what is the background. It's only inside the picture that one becomes aware of the narrowing of the horizon the constraints of the framing, the objectification. Somehow Jericho manages to transform an incident, a disaster, a catastrophe into something that uh, offers uh, release and uh, possible redemption. First of all, he was able to engage with the real issues of his time. There's a uh, conviction that he's able to uh, convey, and a force, an energy. It doesn't seem to be just matter-of-fact or distance in some way. Of course, it's distance to allow us to see and to catch what's happening, but at the same time, it involves us, in a way, in the direction of redemption and salvation, and maybe offers some uh, resolution to the question of violence, rather than create conditions of despair and, and pessimism, which I believe contribute to the uh, present uh, perception of violent scenes and graphic violence, which has become part of our background. But Jericho manages to overcome that, to surmount the commonplace, and achieve a, a work of epic proportions. I did a deal that there's no censorship on my work. Um, I've got absolute access. I could go anywhere. I could be in uniform. And this was really a revival of the system Australia's always had of the war artist and photographer. I only arrived in uh, Kigali a couple of days before the Kabeo massacre. And uh, when I was there, I, I was the only person covering it. Because I was in uniform, the uh, RPA, who were the Tutsi Army, made sure that all journalists were out and they didn't allow helicopters to land. They felt that they could get away with this massacre if the world didn't record it. And I puzzled them because I was in uniform and I had a camera. In a way, the soldiers loved me being there because the RPA was saying, you can't take the photos. But because I didn't belong to the army, really, I could. You know, I was my own, you know, I had the freedom to do it. And they're all saying, shoot them, George, and get the story out. This has to be told. we can be transported inside the picture. Perhaps when we are not made to see or when we are caught unawares, maybe something is pointed out for us or revealed that we haven't thought of before. 
For me, it was watching films made throughout the siege of Sarajevo by local filmmakers intent on continuing to practice their craft, to record their vision, compose their arrangement of war on the ground. I am breathless as I watch the long filmed testimony of a captured war criminal, the details of his acts, his detachment. He has stopped thinking of people where he's lived all his life as being human. What he has done to them is inhuman. He has stripped them and stabbed and raped them of their humanity. We are being shown his face, not his deeds. There is space in the imagery to think of my grandmother and her mother and father before her. They bore a Muslim name, Begovic, from the time of the Ottoman conquest. They were of the Bey, of the Turkish ruler. Their name may have been enough in this time to strip them of everything. I have never realized this so closely. What lies in a name? What separates one person from another? What determines one for the raft of possibilities and one for the sharks in the water? In Somalia, I went to a, uh, what they called a feeding station out in the desert. And the soldiers had said, we hate going to this place because everyone there is dying. And when we got there... Um, there were two nuns that had gone crazy. You know, they were, one was American, one was Filipino. Both of them only had religious training, no medical training. They had people coming with horrific wounds and and absolute malnutrition, children dying. In their desperation, without any help, they had to say, well, we can only help some of them. So they put a green tarp over some of the shade shelters and those children could be saved. And then the ones that were put under the shoulders with the orange tarps were to be allowed to die gracefully. The difference was, if a child could swallow, they had this very rough, muesli-like, high-protein porridge and biscuits, which I'd find difficult to swallow. And after a child had been in the desert without water or food, they'd lost their ability to have saliva. So that was the delineation between life and death. And I always carry a lot of barley sugar and you know high glucose lollies I've found that's from my experience that's a thing to have and the nun said no you can't give that to the kids in the orange tents it's only going to be wasted they're going to die and I just sort of stubbornly sat down and uh, was just thinking this over and this old lady came in and she had this beautiful little skeletal girl called Aliwa the old lady's name was Moreau and she left the little girl with me and I knew she was an orange tent little girl and I was just there thinking about and wondering what to do and then the old lady turned up again with two more little girls and she sat down next to me and uh, I got a translator and I discovered that everyone in her village had died including her daughter and these were her three granddaughters and the old lady had thought it's two weeks to the feeding station I can probably only carry one but then like Sophie's choice she hadn't been able to choose so she ended up she'd carry one for a kilometre and then go back for the other two just as I was sort of talking to the old lady, one of the nuns came over and said, that one has to go into the orange tent. And I thought, no, she doesn't. You know, that's uh, not after what this lady's been through. To me, that was absolute courage. 
So I pulled out my barley sugar, and I can still see the old lady cracking the barley sugar in her teeth, and gave it to little Aliwa, and her tongue came out, and she started licking it. And by that afternoon, she had saliva. She was able to eat the high-protein porridge, and we got her into the green tent. A tent green with possibilities. A raft of hope. The incident involved is a very tragic and a momentous case. In the summer of 1816, a convoy of four ships set out for Senegal in West Africa. A colony of France was restored to France by Britain, which had taken it during the Napoleonic Wars. And now the French were shipping settlers, civil servants, and the new administrators to regain possession of the colony in West Africa. The uh, convoy set out on 2 July 1816, but because the captain was negligent and because he refused to listen to the advice of more experienced officers, he just took off on his own and lost sight of the other ships in the convoy and ran aground on the reef of Argan, which is just off the coast of West Africa. So what they decided to do was to abandon the ship and put everybody, all the passengers, in lifeboats. But once again, the captain's negligence was exposed because there were not enough lifeboats to convey all 400 passengers to shore. They could get approximately 250. The remaining 150, they decided to put on a raft, which they built of the masts and the spars of the broken ship. And so they constructed this raft very quickly. It was rather makeshift, just was lashed together in the, uh, in the most improvised way. And then they put 150 people aboard that raft. Now, you have to imagine this raft, which was an open-work construction, could hardly bear the weight of these 150 people, and they were densely crowded into a very small space, and the water was up to their knees, and they were outfitted with some barrels of wine, a little bit of um, biscuit flour, but very little precious uh, foodstuffs, and they were also without uh, navigational instruments, and the slightest little movement of anyone caused an irritation to someone else. So uh, it was a very uncomfortable position for these 150 passengers were placed on this raft. Now the idea was that the lifeboats would tow the raft with guy lines to the coast. Well, only a few hours after this experiment had been tried, the captain decided that the raft was an obstacle to progress, to their own progress, and decided to cut the wires. So suddenly, abruptly, they cut the wires connecting the lifeboats to the raft, and now the raft, with 150 people, without navigational instruments, without sufficient food, without sufficient drink, is abandoned.
I'm still watching the screen. I'm touched by a filmic diary of small moments in a woman's life in Sarajevo. She's thin on too little food, elegant as a bird going from twig to twig on rare, bare bushes, trying to find enough fuel to make a cup of coffee. What did they do? Did this group, for example, unite around common goals of survival? Did they curse the government? Did they curse the conditions that set them into place? Did they try to seek some uh, understanding among themselves about the rationing of the food, to how to distribute the scarce resource and the rest? No. The first thing is they divided themselves into a sort of hierarchical situation, which duplicated the hierarchical situation, which put them there in the first place. And they then began to quarrel and to bicker among themselves. And soon there was mutiny from the lower ranks. And during the mutiny, many people were killed and thrown overboard. Well, after only five days at sea, out of the 152, there were only 30 people left. Can you imagine in five days, out of the 152, there were just 30 people left after the mutiny and after the wounded and the rest uh, were thrown aboard. From Rwanda, it was an image like this that offered some kind of insight, a way into the story, a photograph and a painting by George Gittos, of a preacher in the Cabello camp reading his Bible aloud among those waiting hopelessly for death to come. It's a moment of calm, suffused with grace and dignity among the desolation. The massacre uh, went over a five-day period. 1920th, 21st, it built up, and then on the 22nd, there was just massive slaughter. And on the morning of the 23rd, I went with the group that went to count the bodies. We had a proper body-counting device, you know. And uh, we just went down a small section of road and with that device counted 3,700 bodies. And that was a section of road that the RPA had spent the night clearing. For me, it was like no artist could ever depict or imagine anything more hellish. For example, the Zambian UN force there had collected many of the bodies and put them on the side of the road, but they'd been selective because bodies are different shapes and sizes, so you'd have like a garden wall, you know, 20 or 30 metres, like rocks are stacked, but it'd be children between the age of three and five, and then you'd come to a wall of children between the age of six and eight, and so on. And in front of each of these piles, you'd have a leering soldier who'd been responsible for this kind of killing. Everywhere there were blood trails leading up to where they'd dragged people and hidden the bodies. And as far as the eye can see, there was just bodies. Um, this was possible because the RPA had just... There'd been about 250,000 refugees in this camp, and they'd forced them out of their little huts by burning them. And then they pressed them together as tight as sardines... And they were put in more or less job lots for killing, you know, in sort of paddocks. If you're going to imagine how to slaughter a lot of people quickly, they were pushed together, they couldn't even sit down. And when I actually arrived on the 19th, one of the soldiers said to me, what does this remind you of? And I said, well, what does it remind you of? And he said, the Gestapo. And already, you know, the Aussie diggers could see that these people were being organised for death. 
And some of the most moving images I did were of the fear that built up within the civilians. They just knew that they were going to die. And you'd see a father with all of his little children, the mother had already died, just holding them like a, um, you know, under his arms, like under, under, under his wings, you know, wanting to protect them and wanting to come to the UN thinking that possibly the UN would help them. And uh, we'd find people doing desperate things like hiding in the toilet, you know, crawling through the toilet hole. Whole families, you know, mothers with children on their backs actually down in the toilet pit. You know, this build-up of fear. And we, we actually saw an enormous number of people killed because people had come to be near the UN because they felt the UN would give them protection. Layers and layers of bodies existed beyond our perimeter because they'd come to the UN perimeter for protection. Then the most uh, gruesome account uh, of all is the fact that uh, the hierarchy, the group that remained in power, decided that there was insufficient uh, resources for the remnant and that some decision had to be made about getting rid of the wounded and those so close to death that it would be useless or a waste to share the last remaining resources with them. So they they had to make this, what the survivors called, of course, this horrendous uh, decision to dispose of people aboard so that there would be sufficient quantities of wine and biscuit flour to go around and save the rest. The most uh, moving photograph and drawing that I did in Cabello camp, I was actually unable to work anymore because I was holding a patch on a woman who I eventually carried out. I saw this woman and her face was bloated, close to dying, and she had bullet holes all through her chest. She must have had 18 bullet holes in her. And to my amazement, she went out and got one girlfriend after another. She got about three or four of her girlfriends in. Some of them just had an ankle wound. And then she looked at me as if she was judging how much she had left in her, and she went out and got a couple of kids. Then she came and sat so close to me that her thigh was on mine, and she put her hands together and put her head on her hands and closed her eyes. I thought, I've got to get someone to help her. You know, there's no one around. And then when someone came, I realised that she'd actually died. And um, just the absolute intimacy, her little drama. She actually brought her girlfriends around me because here I was with my blue helmet and she felt I'll get them to a safe spot. And the safe spot was this crazy Australian artist that's sitting there but in the middle of something he didn't fully understand. And I picked up a baby... That's what I did for a lot of the rest of the morning, just collecting babies from dead mothers. I felt very, in a way, self-righteous with this baby, you know, sort of like my, probably stupidly so, but I decided to try and look in the eyes of these killers and uh, I found that none of them could meet my gaze, that um, as I was walking along I'd try to look in their eyes and they'd look down. You could see that, you know, there was a deep shame. stopped thinking of people where he's lived all his life as being human. Some of the people aboard gnawed the leather from their hats. Some of them mixed uh, urine uh, with their wine in order to stretch uh, the resources, tried everything, but finally cannibalism seemed to be their 
uh, last resort, and uh, they began to literally consume themselves, consume the corpses of their fellows aboard. So these were some of the uh, horrible events that, that went on. I think they'd been built into a hysteria. There was a huge church, and prior to the main massacre, they had, like, revivalist meetings in the church and working up and singing and so on, kind of like a religious fervour for killing. And then when they came down to do the killing, they were singing and dancing and they were in a hysterical state. And then the officers more or less blew a couple of whistles and they all stopped and went into regimented groups that went out and systematically did the killing. But, you know, they were in an emotionally drunken state. They were worked up. It's sort of like what Hitler did or, you know, the, I think... The truly evil people in these situations are the ones who are there and manipulate people in this way. And I felt that the next day these young boys just couldn't comprehend what they'd done while they are in that altered state of consciousness while they are doing the killing. The artist wrote later, Early in the shooting, people had been filled with fear. As the hours passed, it appeared that the bullets were no longer a threat to them. At the height of the massacre, when we walked among the dead and dying, there was a heightened atmosphere, as if the air around us still contained the spirits of those who had just died. A sense of fearlessness seemed to overwhelm all the living, Rwandan refugees and UN soldiers alike. In retrospect, I can only explain the feeling as being as if the departing spirits were reassuring the souls of the living that death was nothing to fear. It was like these newly dead were passing on information, departed soul to living soul, about the continuation of consciousness after death. I have clean sleep, you know, I don't... Um, in fact, I make the decision, as soon as I get on the plane, I head for home, that it wouldn't be fair on my family to bring it back with me. So I usually, the next day after, I go down and watch my son play soccer and the other fathers in Bundina don't know where I've been and I, I don't tell them. And then we go around to Miranda Fair and, you know, get some junk food and watch a movie and... Uh, I tell everyone I'm okay and uh, just try to put it behind me. So I know that I've got to keep going again. And uh, it's just not fair on other people to try and get sympathy. And it, it works. I mean, it works on me. I don't feel sorry for myself if I'm not telling other people that they've got to feel sorry for me. Or if I tell myself I'm not going to have nightmares, I don't. I think a lot of these things can be controlled, you know. events of which I speak, there are quieter times. I mean to say more peaceful times, for peace is what is supposed to obtain. Conflict you will have always, because conflict is a part of life. But the problem is 
not to develop this conflict to the big conflicts because local conflict is always some sort of thing which you can control somehow sooner or later it's very rocky on this raft the water is still treacherous with hidden reefs and currents that may throw the craft off course there've always been these metaphors about the abandoned ship the ship of fools or noah's ark uh, many cases of ships at sea in moments of crisis is a metaphor for society cut asunder as we reach the end of the millennium we don't look forward we're not like those figures in the raft in 1819 looking forward and thinking in terms of a progressive trajectory rather than we're looking back and not very satisfied with what we see and i think that perhaps until we break the uh, millennial threshold landfall is within view a safe haven ahead if you read literature before the first world war and second world war people already years before were expecting the, the big war The war was in the mind of the people long long time before it started in real history. Now there is no such atmosphere in the world for the big conflict. So I I think there is no worries in sight. So we can be uh, from this point of view we are safe. Dreams. When the raft arrives, how many will survive with their bodies and minds intact from this journey they didn't plan to make? Remember that they were cast adrift, abandoned on a sea of troubles, on a raft of hope. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.